All right, church, good morning to you. How are we doing? Good. You know, I was thinking this text works really well for me because I helped my father-in-law move yesterday. And so hands are drooping, knees are weak. Got like, I, I'm 36 now, and so I'm on the other side of old now. And, um, and everything gets a little bit harder, I hear. Um, and I feel, and I know. And so... Uh, this passage acknowledges some of that reality in our lives, in our spiritual journeys. And I want us to ask this question of ourselves, and then I'm going to say a prayer for us in our time together. But, but I want to ask this question grace right now. Do you know it? Do you feel it? Have you been aware of that today? You've been training for that. How's God at work in your running? Let me ask him for his help. Father, I pray that in my weakness, there would be a demonstration of your spirit's power. That God, in my inadequacy, you would show your complete and perfect adequacy. God, that today you would infuse in our hearts and lives your strength. And that, God, we would realize both that we are in the race, but also, Lord, you're helping us run it. And we would not forget that. And so, Lord, where we are weak, where we are in need of your mercy, where we feel that we can't keep going, Lord, I pray that you would help us. pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, the church says, Amen. was reading this commentary, and there was an article written out of the Boston Globe some years ago in relation to the Boston Marathon. A man by the name of Art Carey wrote this. He said, by now, the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride is shortened. My legs are tight. My breathing is shallow and fast. My joints are becoming raw and worn. My neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine. Half-dollar-sized blisters sting the soles of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded. I want to stop running. I've hit the wall. Now, the real battle begins. Up the first of many long inclines, I start to climb. One, two, one, two, one, two. Right, left, right, left, right, left. I keep watching my feet move one after the other, hypnotized by the rhythm, the passage of the asphalt below. Shoulder cramps, laden legs, seething blisters, dry throat, empty stomach, stop, keep moving, must finish. A radio listening spectator reports that the race is over. Six miles away, Bill Rogers had just won again. His ordeal is done. But the most intense of my own is just about to begin. Heartback, heartbreak Hill. The last, the longest, and the steepest. A half-mile struggle against gravity designed to finish off the faint and the faltering. Hundreds of people stand along the hill watching the runners speed on to Boston. Slowly, ever so slowly, the grade begins to level out. The last four miles are seemingly endless. Some runners, their eyes riveted catatonically to the ground, trudge alone in their bare feet, holding in their hands the shoes that have blistered and bloodied their feet. 
Others team up to help each other, limping along, arm in arm, like maimed and battle-weary soldiers returning from the front. Finally, the distinctive profile of the prudential building looms on the horizon. I begin to step up my face, by pace, faster, faster, smoother, smoother, suppress the pain, finish up strong, careful, not too fast, don't cramp. I can see the yellow stripe 50 yards ahead. I run faster, pumping my arms, pushing off my toes, the fine clutching leg cramps to mount a glorious last gasp kick. 40 yards, 30 yards, 20 yards, cheers, clapping, 10 yards, finish line, an explosion of euphoria. I'm clocked in at 2 hours, 50 minutes, and 49 seconds. My place, 1,176. I find the figures difficult to believe, but if they're accurate, then I've just run the best marathon of my life. While times and places are important, and the breaking of a personal record is thrilling, especially as you grow older, the real joy of the Boston Marathon is just finishing, doing what you have set out to do. You know, we all look at life today, and we look what's ahead, and and for all of us, there's nobody in the room exempt from this. There's, there's much ahead. Much to be exhausted by, much to grow weary in, much to be faint-hearted with. But God comes today with an infusion of life. An infusion of the life of Christ. Do, do you know that, that as we run the race, the thing that God is most concerned about is that the race that we run bears the nail-pierced markings of Christ's hands. That's what He wants. He wants us to run the race in such a way that people see Jesus lifted high. And it doesn't matter how you run the race as far as how fast or how long or how many breaks you might need to take, but that you finish it. Like the Apostle Paul said as he wrote Timothy, the finer chapter of what he would write, that he had run the race well, that he'd finished. He was faithful. He didn't talk about the churches he planted. He didn't talk about the people he led to Christ. He didn't talk about the many places that he went to visit. He talked about finishing the race, doing what he set out to do. And my prayer, friends, is that we would finish the race, that we would run it well. And as we look at this in the context of Hebrews, we see that there's this great cloud of witnesses, these spectators who have already run the race and who have finished the race well. And they're the ones standing alongside clapping and cheering and telling the walkers to jog and telling the runners to sprint and say, keep going, keep going, it's all worth it. I've been there, I've done that. Would you, would you run that race with them? Would you run that race alongside of Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith? So I've got three points in this sermon today. There is uh, three divisions that I want to draw your attention to. Number one is that there's this encouragement that takes place first off. In verses 12 and 13, you see the encouragement that the author of Hebrews wants his church to know in the middle of running the race. The encouragement is really important. And then there's a holiness that the, the author wants to see developed within the runners. Holiness 
is an important part of running the race in the Christian journey. That you'll see in verse 14 and the first part of 15. And you'll see that there's also a repentance that the church is admonished to walk in. That there would be change that would take place in the hearts and lives of the believers with whom he is writing to, and that's at the second part of 15, into verse 17. And so we'll start with the encouragement. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Be helpful for us to get a glimpse of the context of the church in Hebrews as the author is writing to them. They are weary. They are battle-worn. They are exhausted. Their faith is costly. It is a, it is a, a constant grind for them to live out the faith <clears throat> each and every day. And that grind is something that they feel because the community around them is by and large rejecting them. They're feeling isolated. And it's really easy for them to say, you know what, I may as well just give up right now. I can't make anybody happy around, uh, around me. This thing is costing more than it might feel like it's worth. How do I keep moving forward? And the author of Hebrews is reminding them to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. He's the pace setter. He's the one that shows us how to run, how fast to run, how to, when we're weary, take a breath and expectantly get our hearts beating back again. And they're needing that infusion here, and the author knows it. In fact, many believe that this is a quotation from Isaiah 35, one, a verse they would be very familiar with, that they would strengthen their knees and that their hands would be lifted up. You know when your hands droop to your sides, you've stopped running. But the author says, no, no, keep going. And what is God doing in the life of the church? What's God doing in our lives right now? As you look back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, we see that it is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the, his father does not discipline? Pastor Josiah last week did a great job in sharing with us the importance of what it means to be authentic sons and daughters of God. Authentic children of God. That we would know beyond a shadow of the doubt when we receive the hardships of life that those hardships are God-given even. And that God gives those hardships not to crush us, but to break us down and to build us up. Part of the purpose of discipline is that the church would be broken down and built back up again because it's so easy to look to the world to receive value and dignity and worth. And that's what God desires to crush. And where we look for those things, God so chooses to crush those things so that we might look to Him so that we could be properly built back up again. And that is what the church needed. Their focus steadfast on Jesus Christ the author and perfecter of their faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the sin and the shame. 
and is seated at the right hand of God. You look at the life of Jesus and you know it was filled with difficulty. You look at the life of Jesus and you know it was filled with hardships. But you look at the life of Jesus and you see an endurance. And you see a blood-bought picture of grace that's given for us, those who are weak. And that blood-bought picture is one that the author wants us to see. The Apostle Paul says that we were dead in sin. That we were dead in sin. And then in Romans 5.8 he says, For while we were yet sinners, Christ died. There was nothing that took us out of that deadness until Christ came. And what did Christ have to do to breathe life into our deadness? Well, He had to die. And in His death, He he died not when we cleaned ourselves and made ourselves better. Not when we... Not when we started to make the right decisions. No, we couldn't do that because when we were dead in our sins, it means that we were lifeless, we were hopeless, and we were under condemnation. That's the definition of dead in sin. Lifeless, hopeless, helpless, and under condemnation. And that we were under the curse of God, but God took the curse and gave us the promise And it's the promise by which we endure. It's that inheritance that the author talks about here a little bit later. And the first thing that we need to know is that there is strength for the weak. There is help for the weary. There is life for the exhausted. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. If there's an unruly person among us, well, they need rebuked. If there's a faint-hearted person among us, well, they need encouraged. If there's someone that needs help or that's weak, then they need help. And the encouragement of the Lord is such that does all of these things. And I think the encouragement is something that each of us need Today, oftentimes when my child is undisciplined, they're not un- they're not they're they're or, or when my child is unruly, they can be unruly because they need help. They're not unruly because they because they're trying to be a problem. They're not unruly because they're trying to make mom and dad angry. Because the only way that they know they can get help is if they. Well, they make a fuss. And so sometimes when they make a fuss, in their unruliness, I might rebuke them. When really what they need is me to listen to them and help them and encourage them. So that way I could see that that unruliness is because they can't do something. And so mom and dad have to get down on their level and listen to them so that they can be encouraged or they could be helped. And sometimes they're unruly just because they're just unruly. And so they need rebuke and a spanking, by the way. Did I get an amen on that? And that's the discipline that a loving father is willing to give. The discipline that's necessary to see our children walk in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You can encourage in three ways. And I want to draw your attention to those three ways Again, encouragement in our words. 
Some people are weak and they're weary, but words will go a long way for them. There are uh, in, uh, words of affirmation if you take the five love languages. There are words of affirmation type people that, man, those words just carry weight and immediately infuse life into their exhaustion. Appreciation is so valuable in this world and in our culture because some, so many things go unnoticed and undone and we feel alone and isolated in the midst of it. But encouragement says, no, you've invested into my life and I thank you for it. Or you are running the waste well. Keep up the good work. It strengthens those drooping hands. It makes those weak knees a little bit stronger. I remember I ran a 5K one time, and it was my first 5K that I ran, and I did a little bit of training for it, kind of, and I ran it with a friend, and the friend who was running the 5K really is like running half marathons and 10Ks and things like that and does really good, but they found it appropriate to run this race with me, and part of their purpose in running the race with me was to be an encouragement to me. They encouraged me with their presence. And in that encouragement, it was to keep pace with me, but also cause me to pick up the pace a little bit, right? And so I was, man, it was a hard race to run, but I did what I thought I could not, and I wouldn't have done it unless they were alongside of me. And that's the way life is. We need those people alongside of us who, with their presence, just help us run a little bit faster. Just help us do a little bit more than we thought we would be able to do. Those people who would challenge us, who will get in our face and tell us that this is important. Who will look into our lives and see when we're not doing the things that matter. And say, you're going to suffer for those things. And they're willing to be there to tell us those things. And then they're also willing to be there to help us with those things. There's encouragement that's done with deeds. And those are doing the encouragement with deeds. is not just simply taking our words, but with our very lives coming alongside of somebody, even at great cost. And then finally, there's the encouragement that comes with care. Healing the lame. Those that are out of joint and bringing them back in. Those who are on the crooked path, making sure that they're in the straight line to Jesus Christ. Who care? It's like the Good Samaritan. You had the man who was left for dead on the side of the road, and the pastor and the priest walked by him. But the Good Samaritan, who had no reason to be with a Jew at that time, well, he crossed the racial and economic and social barriers of his day in order to, with great care and concern, bind up the wounds of this broken man who would have died without him and with great cost set him up in a hotel and a, a place where he could get care. He went down to the, his level to serve him. This is the encouragement that the Scriptures give us. This is the people that God has called us to be as the church. Encouragement says that there is a better day coming. Do you hear that? There's a better day coming. That's what encouragement says. And encouragement says that I believe it by faith in Jesus Christ. And I am going to allow the faith that God has given me, if it's strong, to help the weak. And those who have 
faith that's weak, look to the strong and know that the only reason their faith is strong isn't because of them, but the rock-solid object, Jesus Christ, and the power of His Holy Spirit that strengthened it. Because we know that who, those who are strong in faith can easily be weak, and those who are weak in faith can easily be strong. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. When faith got difficult for that church, it was easy to say, let's not meet together because people might notice us. And if people notice us, then we could get hurt. If people notice us, then we could be ostracized. Well, the author of Hebrews says, no, go against the grain. Meet together. Come together to worship the Lord because there's a better day coming. There's a day drawing near that Jesus is going to bring about His fullness and redemption. And those who are under condemnation have been warned that that day of reckoning is coming. So the call is to walk in holiness. The church is called to walk in holiness. It's part of running the race. You can't run the race if you're not willing to walk in holiness. There's no such thing as starting the race and not finishing it in the Christian life. There's no such thing. The starting gun has been fired. The race is going. And the important part is that we finish out what we've set to do. Now, I I know that with that brings some things to mind of our life that ask us the question, are we running the race and are we running it well? Well, well, to that point, I want to tell you that we're gathered here because there's a running that's taking place right now. Um, We're gathered here because we understand that there's a weariness and an exhaustion that's there and that we need the help of God. There's no one that's able to finish the race that said, wow, look at me, I was amazing, I did it well. I ran it really well. I mean, I trained for it, I worked hard for it in and of my own strength. I did it. No one's going to be able to say that. Because running the race is by the power of the Holy Spirit who brings endurance and the holiness of God that we sang about earlier in our worship service tells us that we are called to be holy as He is holy. And why is God concerned about the holiness of, of the people who are running the race? Because if that holiness is not there, Satan will take us out. And so we have to run the race in holiness, asking God to bring it to bear in our lives. And that means that we have peace with everyone. Say that with me. Peace with everyone. Now, the peace with everyone happens to be out of our control, doesn't it? We tend to think that peace is meaning that I'm not hostile towards someone else and they're not hostile towards me, but the peace that the author of Hebrews is talking about is a shalom in the heart. A, a, what needs to be in the lives of the church is that there is a complete harmony in Jesus Christ. There could be differences. There can even be there. There can even even be divisions among us. But there is a harmony that happens 
that comes about with a holiness. And that harmony is so important and that's needed to be guarded. That shalom in our heart. Paul says, strive for peace with everyone. Actually, that's the author of Hebrews. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, this doesn't mean that we're just a a people pleaser and we try to make everybody happy. No, this means that that which needs to be reconciled by the blood of Christ is that which we pass into. That's what we're willing to walk into. That if you, you know in your own families where there is not peace, it makes family really hard. And the same is true of the church. If we're not at peace with one another, then there's room for this, the, the works of the devil to come in and bring division And so as far as it depends upon you, not as far as it depends upon them, as far as it depends upon you, see that there's a shalom in your heart and that unresolved conflict is brought to the Lord first and then to your brother or sister or those who need peace. There's also, with this holiness, the the author says, Without this holiness, there will not be a visible demonstration of the Lord's power in your life. An unholy person or a person who walks in unholiness, even if they confess Jesus Christ, it shows that there is a needing of demonstration of God's power in their life. And listen to me. Again, this is something that we should not look at our lives and say, oh, I am such a bad person and I'm not showing the holiness of God. No, it's not meant to say that I'm strong. It's meant to say in desperation that I need God's help so that that power would come and that holiness would show God's power in our lives. You think of holiness as you look at people around you And oftentimes, the focus of the people around you in a holy life isn't really holiness. The focus of the people around you in a life of holiness is Christ. And if Christ is the one that looks to, there will be His holiness that's brought into our lives. You'll see Jesus. People don't look at a person that walks in righteousness as a righteous person. People see past you in the way that you live to who Christ is and says that person's different. And when we can see that that person's different in looking to the Lord, they begin to see, well, I can be like them. If they can do it, I can do it. And then they start to ask the questions, how are you doing it? And my prayer is that you would answer that question. Oh, not giving them a laundry list of chores that you've done to become a better person but that you would give them the person work of Jesus Christ, the one that you look to, to make you holy as he is holy. And so that holiness is so important so that the world would look past you and see Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Grace is God's undeserved favor that's given to the undeserving. God's grace is His blood-bought love for sinners. And that grace is something that we have to come under. 
Do you see, holiness is out of reach without grace. That's why the author of Hebrews says, be vigilant for grace. Grace is so necessary, friends. Because nobody in the room here today deserves to be here. Grace is so necessary, friends. Because we all have to receive the same mercies as everyone else. And that grace is something that each of us must obtain. And as we are vigilant, looking to see that no one fails to obtain that grace, it calls us to respond in this world with the sweetness of grace, a graciousness that's unlike anything else that this world has to offer, the grace of God's Son on the cross, that no one would fail to obtain the mercy of Christ. The, the biggest propensity for failure in this world is right there. You fail to obtain that grace. And you are still hopeless and helpless and under condemnation without life. But that grace given is the blood-bought merit of Jesus Christ. The works of Christ for the works that you could not accomplish and that you could not do. And so, friends, in the darkest of our days, when we feel most unholy, well, the answer to the Scriptures is simply draw near to Christ, whom in Him we find mercy and grace in our deepest and most desperate times of need. So there's no one here that's exempt from needing grace, but there's no one here that would be exempt from not receiving it. Because there is from our high priest, a gracious invitation to come here near. Have you been set free or set on fire from the grace of God? It makes us alive in Christ. Dallas Willard says this as it relates to grace and holiness. He says, grace is not opposed to effort, meaning doing, action, activity. He says it is opposed to earning, Effort is action. Earning is attitude. You've never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. The grace of God wells up in us the energy to run the race and to run it well. And the question for you and me is, have we tasted that grace so that way we could start running? So that way we can finish the race? And the Christian is always in need of that grace. The grace of God doesn't just save us. It also sanctifies us. It also brings us into the conformity of the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now there's an example here that we're brought to in the final point of repentance. Repentance. Not like Esau. <laughs> we were shown faith in the hall of the faithful. We see... These, these people who have walked the path that now we are walking that are good examples of faithfulness. Abraham, Rahab, Sarah, David, Moses. The list goes on and on. But here you have a single solitary example of the faithless. One who did not demonstrate repentance. One who did not run the race well. And the verse says in Hebrews 12, 15, 
that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You see the phrase here, the root of bitterness. Oftentimes when we see the root of bitterness, we think of the root of bitterness. Maybe somebody has bitterness in their life towards another person. That's the fruit of bitterness. Well, the root of bitterness goes deeper than that. The root of bitterness goes down into the heart and asks a deeper questions. Instead of the question, do you have peace with everyone? It asks the question, do you have peace with God? Because if you don't have peace with God, you're not going to have peace around you. If you're bitter towards God, then you're certainly going to be bitter towards those around you. Do you see that if the root of your heart is corrupt, the fruit of your heart is corrupt? There's a quote from Deuteronomy. It says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. That verse is a quotation that the author of Hebrews chooses to use to allow us to see that the root of bitterness is that there is a bitterness in your heart towards God. And how does that bitterness come about? Well, the bitterness that comes about in our lives is to say that God's not worthy. And so we look to the things of this world to be more worthy than God. And we choose to worship the created things rather than the Creator. That's what brings the root of bitterness in our hearts. Esau was a man who was driven by his appetite. Esau was a man that was driven by the day to day. He didn't see his life connected intrinsically to the value and worth that God had given him. He didn't see his life intrinsically connected to the one who had come to bring redemption where he needed it. And as a result, he traded away his inheritance or his birthright right, for a pot of porridge. Jacob was cooking stew in the home one day, and well, Esau's kind of a country boy, and Jacob's kind of like your Food Network cook. And he comes in and he smells the stew, and he says, "Give me some of that stew." And Jacob says, well, I'll give you the stew for your birthright. And he says in his hunger, and maybe even at the point of the death, he says, what good is my birthright if I'm hungry and need to live? And so he counted his life more valuable than the blessing and the favor of God. And he traded away his birthright for a single meal. He traded away the blessing and promise of God for a pot of stew. You see, that's where the root of bitterness began in Esau, when he failed to cherish the blessing and the favor of God. And I tell you, friends, that when he failed to cherish the blessing and the favor of God, it was a failing to cherish God Himself. It wasn't just the things that God gives. You know, Esau could have valued that blessing and that inheritance because he just wanted his father to die. And if his father died, he would get all that his father had. 
Kind of like the, the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. That, you know, as soon as dad dies, I'm going to get what he has. So I've just got to trudge it out. So that way I can get my blessing. But the blessing was not the father's stuff, but the father himself. And Esau cherished the inheritance, but he didn't cherish the one who promised the inheritance. He didn't cherish the Lord who gave it. And so he regretted that day. It says here that he regretted that day and he longed with... It says in verse at the end of verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, does that mean that Esau wanted to repent, but he could not? Think about that for a moment. Does that mean that Esau sought to change, but he couldn't change? I don't believe that to be true. And I don't think the Bible tells us that that was true. I think the, the Bible is telling us with Esau's seeking to repent but could not is that Esau, re, Esau regretted the fact that he traded away his birthright because he didn't receive the blessing. And he didn't want the God who gave him the blessing, but he just wanted the blessing. And if you want the blessing without the blesser, there's no blessing there's nothing at the end of the day that will satisfy that deep hunger. And so he traded away to satisfy his hunger in a moment. The open arms of God who is willing to bless those who will truly come to repentance. And that's what repentance is. That is Repentance is saying, I have failed. I have failed to love the one from whom all blessings flow. I have failed to love the one who is most lovable. And I have sought from God the things that he can give rather than God himself. And so the, the warning here is a warning that may we be a people that walks in repentance and may the root of bitterness be purified to where a root of righteousness come because Jesus Christ is planted deep within our heart and soul. And we know as we look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, we're not just asking Jesus to give us stuff. We're asking Jesus to give us himself. And that is who he freely gives us himself. That's why he became man and dwelt upon, uh, uh, among us so that we can know we have all that we need in Jesus Christ. A repentance that, God's fo that is God-focused versus focused on trying to get the things of God. We get God himself. You know, Billy Graham just died several weeks ago. 99 years old, he ran the race well. He knew he was running a race, and he ran it well. I was thinking about it in America. We know Billy Graham as America's pastor. And the reason why pastors can call Billy Graham a pastor's pastor is because of the Billy Graham rule. Billy Graham rule is pretty simple. 
He chose not to be alone with a woman who was not his wife because he knew that not being alone, by, 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 if he were alone with a woman who was not his wife, it could cause him to be disqualified in some way down the road. And so for his own heart and soul, the integrity of his relationship with Jesus Christ, the integrity of his relationship with his wife Ruth and his children, he, he ran the race well and realized that you had to put some things in place so that you could run the race well. He lived a life of repentance. We, my wife and I had the opportunity when we were in Charlotte to go to the Billy Graham Library. This was on the day of his death. It was a really powerful. The Spirit's presence was moving very powerfully in that place. And the library was a representation of Billy's ministry, his life and work. And one of the things that fascinated me was his wife, Ruth. Billy said his wife, Ruth, knew the Bible better than he did. She, he said that he said that she was actually a more godly person than he was. Behind the scenes, there was much that Ruth contributed to the life of Billy Graham. And I think one of the things that she contributed to the life of Billy Graham was to realize that he always needed to change and walk in repentance. When you walk outside of the library and you go through the prayer garden, you see that there's this plot there, and there was one gravestone. Now there's two. And that one gravestone had Ruth Graham's name on it. And she was a woman of humor. Excuse me here. She was a woman of humor. And it, on the gravestone it said, End of construction. Thank you for your patience. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. We're all under construction. We're all in the middle of the race. Whether you're walking, whether you're jogging, or whether you're running, it's important that you know that we are all together trying to finish the race. And on our gravestone should say the same thing.